Hi, this is Dot, and I am here with another episode of Inside My Favorite Manuscript, the podcast where we talk to people who love manuscripts about the manuscripts they love the most. And today we're going to be talking to Dr. Joe Coster. Joe is the Margaret M. Bryant Professor of English at Winthrop University. Her primary areas of scholarship are in women's literacy and literate practices in the later Middle Ages, especially in England, and in applications of social media and digital humanities to pedagogy and English literature. She's currently finishing a book on medieval women's literacy, working with issues of material culture in 15th century literature, and more recently has published on the book of Marjorie Kemp. She has published widely both academic articles and poetry, and I was really pleased uh, and interested to hear that she has fan interests in Doctor Who, Sherlock Holmes, and NASCAR. Um, we are fans of fans on this podcast, and so maybe we'll find a way to talk about that a little bit. In the meantime, welcome, Joe. Thank you. And um, let's start talking about this manuscript that you have. Thanks, Don. I'm delighted to be asked uh, and to talk to my friends at Penn because I'm a Penn alumna. The very first medieval manuscripts I handled was when I was a junior at Penn and Jean Carchalis and Ed Peters brought me to the manuscripts room. Wow. Do you remember which one it was? Uh, the, the, the CH poems, the Chaucer poems. Oh, yeah. Yep, yeah, yep, yep. that was the very first one. And then oh. I took a David Dumville's manuscript seminar the year he was there. Mm -hmm. And since I didn't really read Latin very well at that point, um, they gave me the Wycliffeite New Testament to work with. Oh, yes. And I discovered yeah. that there was a poem in the flyleaves that had never been published. And that, oh, became, wow. and that actually became my master's thesis and my first article. So cool. I, my, my, my manuscript love comes from uh, the sixth floor of Van Pelt Library. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is, where, which is where I work. I feel, I feel a need to say that this, the podcast is mine. It's not, it's not involved in my work, but I do work at yeah. Penn and yeah. I love it there. So I, I love talking to people about their, their Penn connections. Well, so that's well really cool. The manuscript I'm going to talk about today is at Bodley in Oxford. Oh, um, well. <laughs> and I discovered it in the summer of 1983 when I had a fellowship to spend um, several months in Bodley, literally transcribing every manuscript I could get my hand on that mentioned prayers, because that was the focus of my dissertation. And I found this little manuscript that wasn't in the big catalogs. It was in the what they call the Bodley refs the little type, TypeScript catalog, they have things like that. Mm -hmm. That was a early 15th century manuscript. It's the, the designator is Holcomb Miscellaneous 41, Holcomb Misc 41. And it's a two manuscripts in there. There is the, the second one is a version of William Fleet's Remedies Against Temptation, which comes from the 1350s or later, probably around 1358. And the first one is a unknown and unpublished collection of prayers written by a medieval woman for a group of medieval women. Oh, for her religious sisters, she calls them. Mm -hmm. So does that does that does definitely mean that they were in a monastic house or could it be more informal than that? It could have been a, 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 a more informal community, but I, I think it probably was a, a community um, that would have been most common for this form of address at that point. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a cycle of prayers that's based on the life of Christ and it's based on episodes in the life of Christ. And so it'll start with, you know, you know, remember when this happened, Oh Lord, give me this, things like that. And it's mm -hmm. a series of prayers. It has bounced around a little bit. I know where it was as of 1616, 
and tracking it backwards from there has been my the, the fun I've been spending in my spare time for many years. But it, it ended up in the collection at Holcomb Hall in Norfolk uh, in the Koch family collection and came down to them. And apparently right around the First World War, uh, Falconer Madden cherry picked it out of the library as part of death duties. And so it's in Oxford now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was just so excited to find this because, I mean, it's a, it's a scribal copy. It's not an autograph copy, but mm-hmm. a, a text written by women for women. Right. You know, and, th- and this is like, yeah. I said, this is 1983. This is before any of the stuff is in print. We don't know that there's this around. So I was f- totally freaked out to find this. Mm-hmm. Did we, did you find it? You were looking, were you just sort of looking through the type through the, through the description book I, and it just sort of popped out? I, I spent three months just going, turning pages in the catalog. And if it said prayers, I called the manuscript up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's um, amazing. Cause I was working on a dissertation on the rhetoric of prayer Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the evolution of prayer. And so uh, to get this suddenly, and then it turned out to be a paleographic nightmare, So, which is even what made it even more fun. Mm-hmm. The manuscript right now is in a beautiful uh, early 19th century binding. I would put it about 1815, 1820 binding. Probably is bound for Coke. Um, mm-hmm. he had and it has the Coke book plate and the Coke stamp on the, on the outside. Um, and whoever bound it did a beautiful job of binding it. It's a very tight binding. The paste downs are very, yeah. very tight. Don't ask me how I know this. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to open. Yeah. Like a tight binding means that it's, it just makes it really, yeah, make it really hard to open the book and to see down base. into the gutter. And, and, and it's so glued yeah. down that you can't see if there's anything underneath it. And they took out oh, all the no. medieval fly leaves of and course. they cropped it and they cropped it. So yeah, all the good bits are gone. Um, but you can also see um, it's got a lot of dead mildew in it. Uh, whatever it was in before it got wet. Um, mm-hmm. I, I suspect it probably was never in hard boards. I think it was probably in a limp binding right. uh, in its earlier uh, age, just from looking how the um, the mildew goes through the pages and stuff like that. And, you know, we'll talk about some images of that. Um, but so to, to read it, first of all, I mean, the first page is v- virtually illegible. Um, and when I first looked at it and I was trying to read it and things like that. I ended up taking a photograph and looking at the negative of the photograph. Now, of course you can do that on your slide scanner, (laughs) you know, and, um, but at the time it was, it was quite intricate to try to figure out and, and, and to see that the text begins religious sisters in as much as you have desired me diverse times uh, to write for you, you know, and just see that you're getting this um, invitation from a writer you know, talking about her circumstances. Um, and I was just, I thought, this is so cool. You know, I have to know more about this. And so I've been digging, like I said, I've been digging into this manuscript for 40 years. Yeah. So what are, what are your favorite, what are your favorite things uh, about, about it? Um, other than the fact that it, you know, the evidence that it gives me, um, my, I think one of my favorite things are some of the metaphors she uses. Mm-hmm. Um, she talks, for example, about uh, sin in terms of house, housewifery, which is not uncommon. But she says things like, you, you know, when, when you have a guest coming and you normally you'll sweep the dust behind the door and hope they don't see it. And that's you, you can't right. do that with your sins. You know, I, 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 I kind of connect with this woman um, mm-hmm. because, I mean, I mean, it's 600 years later. And how do I clean up my house? I just shove everything behind the door and hope none of my guests look. <laughs> yep. Don't open that closet. Just leave that closet. Door yeah. shut so you yeah, don't see you, it. Yeah. You can put stuff on the guest room bed, but don't look. 
Yeah. <laughs> so um, that certainly is one of my uh, things about it. There's um, so many just episodes where she's just kind of in, you know, the marriage of Cana and, you know, where do you sit the guests? You know, mm-hmm. the whole questions of hierarchy and, and, and prior, priority. Um, um, it, the, the voice is just of a very, someone who you'd like to have a conversation with, I think, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's very um, engaging yeah. Um, and kind of, uh, if you've read enough of medieval prayer and you've read enough of medieval devotional literature, there's a kind of a flat sameness to it. Mm-hmm. And this person has a little more of a voice. Right. So these are, you you know, you mentioned the the metaphors that she uses and these are, and you've, and you obviously you've written a dissertation on this. So you've probably read a lot more women's prayer than most people have certainly more than me is are these that original to her is this like her just coming up with these metaphors on her own from her own lived experience or i would say from her own lived experience and from the way she's talked about and um thought about religion in her time period um Mm -hmm. one of the things i've been working on i did a paper at the julian norwich conference in oxford last year on it was basically sort of the common language that unites many of these spiritual documents from like the 1360s, 70s, 80s. The, the mystics are less special and separate from com- mm-hmm. mainstream uh, religion than we think they are. Uh, Julian of Norwich is, Norwich is using a vocabulary that's very common in her time. So what makes her special is actually what she's doing with it, not the language she's using. Right. Um, and in fact, that's one of the things that first got me into it because the writer of the Festus uh, prayers talks about her Avon Kristen, her fellow Christians. Well, that term is only really in sort of theological discourse from about 1360 or so to about 1400. Um, And it's very popular in that period. You see it in Walter Hilton. It's in the scale of perfection. It's in Wycliffe. It's in Cursor Mundi. There's one reference in Pierce Plowman. Um, Mm -hmm. There's one in the Parsons tale. It's all over Julian of Norwich. And of course, my first thought when I saw it there, because I had just read Julian of Norwich for the first time at that point was I found Julian of Norwich's prayer book. Uh And I, and and really, I I mean, part of what I'm working on for my dissertation, I was trying to prove these were Julian of Norwich's prayers. I was trying to linguistically say that this is similar to the language and, you know, the surviving manuscripts of Julian of Norwich. And that, that was, that proved to be, you know, impossible to pin that down. Right. But the fact that she's using this term, you know, says that she's in that same conversation that Julian mm-hmm. and that Walter Hilton's in, that the cloud of unknowing author is in and things like that. So right. it gives us a sense of whoever this was creating her own prayers, taking what she knows about the life of Christ, putting in her own Bible translations. There's no wow. Latin in this, this is, other than Pater Noster Ave Maria to sig- mm-hmm. signify at the end of each prayer that you should repeat those prayers. Um, she's, she's, she's constructing this. So whoever this was, who was writing it was knowledgeable and felt authorized enough to write her own, uh, religious materials. Because Mm -hmm. in this period, a woman to write would have had to have a male spiritual director authorize her to do it. Right. I remember reading about, I think it was Julian of Norwich who she was, she was, this is just showing how very little I know. She was the one who sort of lived by herself. Yes, she was and an she, anchorite. Yeah, she was an anchorite. And I remember, you know, knowing that there was a man who was sort of her, her, um, yeah, 
Yeah. Any, she wasn't anything, just by herself. Anything yeah. a medieval religious did was supposed to be authorized by a confessor. Yeah. Uh, whether she was an anchoress, whether she was a nun in a community, uh, whether she, she was a monk or a friar in a community. All right. Mm -hmm. um, because this whole notion of privilege and right. you know, access to literacy. So when you find something, usually, I mean, like Julian starts off, you know, her books by saying, I, you know, I'm a lewd woman, woman, I'm feeble, I'm frail, um, you know, take this, you know, she uses that humility topos. You get Marjorie Kemp saying that people had asked her for 20 years to tell her story. And, you know, she it took her years before she got a priest who would authorize her to tell her story. Mm -hmm. She felt ready to tell her story. So this is a, um, this is a known topos. And so the, the fact that this woman's prayers exist means some male confessor somewhere authorized them. And that the manuscript got out because it got somewhere to be copied into this nicer level copy and, and ended up somewhere in the northeast of England and eventually in Norfolk in Hockham Hall. So it, it, it tells you that at some level this was authorized discourse. Right, because uh, otherwise it just wouldn't have gotten written. No, and it also wouldn't have gotten recopied and used. I mean, and the manuscript it's in is, an, it, I mean, it's a nice manuscript. If you go beyond the mess of the first pages and you kind of look at the inner page, you can see um, mm -hmm. you, um, the second slide I gave you was the, the beginning of the, of the fleet, but also the one on the right-hand side there is in the, is in the prayers. It's sort of the form of general confession. You can see that it had a a very nice illuminated initial there. Old, mm -hmm. I mean, there's color, there's, you know, the whole canthus leaves and everything else like that. I mean, it's, it's nicely done and you can see how much was cropped off in that picture too. Yeah. And I'll be putting these pictures into the show notes. Uh, and I, I do, I have to say that what we have, this hasn't been digitized. This is an example of a manuscript that hasn't, as far as we know, been digitized. And so the, the photos that we have are from the, you said microfilm. the microfilm that was made in 1983 when you were studying it. Yeah. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. And, and scanned um, into a slide scanner. So, um, yeah, I mean, they're, they're black and white, so you have to, you have to go with mm -hmm. that. Yeah. Um, but I think, yeah, I think this, I don't know if we want to talk about this. We, we can maybe mention it later. I think a lot of people think about manuscripts now as things that you find online to some extent. And this one, if you were doing this work now and you were working entirely online, you, you wouldn't have found it because, no, it's not because it's not there. Right. You have to really go there to, you know, go to the library or this get the not, microfilm. This is not even accessible in like one of the general catalogs. I mean, it's because mm -hmm. it, it's it's a supplemental thing. And it's it's you know, it wasn't when they made the Bodley catalogs and the summary catalogs. It's it's not there. It wasn't it hadn't gotten to Bodley yet. So yeah. um you have to you have to find it, and of course that's one of the great pleasures for me, and one of my great excuses to go to Oxford is I need to go see my manuscript. Right. Um, and it was quite fun when the when they were redoing uh, Bodley, and they had, as I said, decanted the manuscripts into the science library in Parks Road, and and then to go up and find out that they had brought the big loose leaf notebook of typescripts of all the little the notes on all these things over too, so that you know if you were working with these things you could look at the loose leaf notebook. And I have photographs of various pages of the Bodley refs that are just like I need this. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, I that's I had. Yeah, I just think it's it's important to remember that not everything is online. Even, and we talk, we talk, those of us sort of in the field will talk about how 
some collect some collections get digitized and others don't and the collections that are more likely to get digitized are at more wealthy institutions that have the money to get the equipment and to do it and and we're talking about the bodleian Mm-hmm. which is like that's the big library at Oxford and they have a lot of their stuff digitized and they've been digitizing for a long time and yet not everything is even in the main catalog let alone like digitized and online yeah and i mean this is not going to be any really high priority it's grubby it doesn't have pretty pictures in it it's yeah like two two texts with a nice opening pages and everything else is just kind of like there's the little red and blue initials and occasionally a little mm-hmm. dot of gold leaf um so there's this would not be high on anybody's priority list yeah uh, to digitize um and it's a shame because it's a great text to work with the uh the second text in the manuscript the william fleet text uh in fact i've seen some references to it but when fleet's remedies was um edited this text was not included in it people didn't even know it existed and -hmm. it's a real interesting stage because fleet's text started out being addressed only to men and then it was to men and women, and then it was more to women, and then became general Christians um, mm-hmm. as as the, the text got passed. And this is sort of what we call the version C, sort of late version C. So it's men and women. Mm-hmm. You know, every time where he would have said my brother, it now says brothers or sisters right. uh, and things like that. So it shows us the second text in there also shows us that here's a text being adapted for a community of women. Mm-hmm. And put the two together in this nice binding. Here's something that was made you know, or at least this nice package, you know, here's something that was made for women of certain amount of economic status. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's a vellum manuscript. It's not a paper manuscript. Uh, oh, right. And, and this, and it was made, what, what date was it? It was this 15th century. Um, this said? copy is probably first quarter 15th century. Okay. The right. hand Which, is a little so- and old fashioned, but um, the manuscript itself, I think, Malcolm Park said 1405 and Ian Doyle said 1425. So I've always split the difference and said 1415. (laughs) So someplace in there. Yeah. So paper would have been available and, um, and cheap and and cheap, but much cheaper than parchment. So the fact that it's on parchment is, is notable. I think this was probably copied. um, And this may be a London manuscript. It may be a a further North manuscript. Um, But I think this was probably copied for somebody whose daughter was going into a house of religion or had become Mm -hmm. received a a, a position in a house of religion. And this was the family gift to that person. Mm -hmm. Uh, It has that kind of appropriate feel for that. Mm -hmm. But then we have to figure out, well, if it was made in London, how did it get, to the north northeast of England, right? Um, and you know we know that things that were being copied. Everybody wants to say like, oh, it's early fifteenth century. It talks about prayer. You know, it has women in it. It's got to have been made at Sion Abbey. It's got to be Bridgetine. You know, that's the, mm-hmm. the you know just the default assumption. And I'm sorry, not everything was made at Sion Abbey or copied for those nuns. <laughs> there were people other nuns. <laughs> well, not only that, but we know, for example, that stuff from Sion Abbey was being um, traded up to and carried up to um, Caro uh, outside of Norfolk, which is uh, Norwich rather, which is the house that Julian of Norwich may have mm-hmm. begun her career in. Right. Um, we know that things that were being sermons being preached to women in London were then being carried up to Cambridgeshire and being preached to women in Cambridgeshire because those copies mm-hmm. survived. Um, yeah. There, there was a regular circulation of ideas. I mean, it wasn't just something was copied and it stayed in one place. Um, you know, the things got moved around. So, you know, that's, that, that's another thing I think to think about is, you know, the existence of a manuscript by being copied at this level like this tells us that say in 1415 books were being copied for women. Right. 
you know, customized for women, which tells you something about the audience. And, you know, we have that stereotype that, you know, literacy was so limited among the female population. Right. But in fact, you know, there's a fairly broad spectrum of people who had access to literacy, at least at some level. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And vernacular literacy. I mean, everybody talks about, you know, uh, Eileen Powers, you know, book on medieval nunneries, where she talks mm-hmm. about, you know, everybody says the, the nuns are illiterate. Well, what it meant was the nuns were, were reading in, in vernacular. Right. Instead of uh, in Latin. Instead yeah. of in Latin. They weren't illiterate. But of course, you know, that's the stereotype that's been around since the 1920s. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and I don't blame Eileen Power for it. I mean, I, she was great to get her dissertation even done at that period you know, when women were only just being accepted at Oxford and she got a dissertation out, um, Mm -hmm. you know, she, she did a fabulous job, but we have to really start to think about the evidence that has come out in the last, you know, century or so, but in Mm -hmm. particular, you know, in the last 30, 40 years as people have been really digging into these manuscripts and finding out about them. Um, So, it's, but, you know, just the fact that this is another thing that I just love about this manuscript is what it says about the level of women's ability to customize texts. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that there was, they, were, they were a market. Right. You know? Yeah. And, they were buying books and, you know, having books made. You know, and Yeah. 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 The uh, Cyan Abbey part, the reason I, I bring that up, too, is because there's one scholar who has published a little bit on this manuscript thinks that. It has, it's, it's similar to another manuscript at Oxford that I have pictures in here of, which is Latin liturgical E17, which is an unfinished Psalter that had a lot of blank pages. And so they've been filled in over the years with handwriting in di- at different times and things like that. And there's a, a short Middle English lyric in that manuscript that is also in the Hakka manuscript. And in the added material, there is a prayer which says pr- in, in Latin, in a, in a, in a very unpracticed hand probably an autographed latin where a young woman has written for prayers for her and she says i am your servant iste mihi johanna i i johanna am your servant and uh the scholar who's written on this manuscript took that name and said oh well some of the decorations in this manuscript look like the haka manuscript and there was a joanna north who was the abbess of Sion in, in 1415 so joanna north wrote these prayers on <laughs> like it doesn't work like that. That's not the way that works. Yeah, I mean, and I gave you, I gave you a picture of the. That's about slide fourteen and fifteen. There, mm-hmm. slide fourteen is the 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 handwriting that he thinks is similar to the Hockham manuscript, and he's right. It is. Right. It's a it's a it's a it's a nice Anglicana book hand. Yeah, right. I was going to say it looks. I I've seen books that look like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's very nothing. Nice. Nothing. You know. You know. It's. It's a little, actually a little less formal than the Hockham hand. But then if yeah. you look at 15, you see sort of like what the editions look like that were contemporary. Oh, yes. All right. And mm-hmm. then on the right-hand side, there's the Estimichi Johanna thing, mm. which is very clearly a late 15th century secretary yes. hand. All right. It's it's nowhere near the same hand. No. So just the fact that a, a Johanna, you know, 50 years later wrote her name in the book does not somehow, you know identify the author of another manuscript that as far as I know was nowhere near this till they both ended up in Oxford. Yeah. Uh, Um, And so that's, you know, that's the sort of thing when you start playing with these manuscripts, there's such pressure to try to identify them and personalize them and say, Mm -hmm. who did this belong to? And, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm as guilty of it as anybody. I have some theories, but 
we don't know. As much as you want these manuscripts to be published and everything else like that, I think you also have a little bit of a responsibility to be, you know, accurate. At least, you know, secretary hand and Anglicana book hand do not look alike. No. You know, and let's not let's at go. all. <laughs> Even if you don't know paleography, those of you listening who don't know a thing about paleography, you will look at these and you will say, those are different. Those yes. are not the same. <laughs> those um, are very, very different. They're very, very different. And identifying scribes, you know, by it's one thing to like look at two scribes writing the same script, like the same script. Yeah. And, but, but, like looking at different scripts they're different it's like it's like di different types of handwriting and like being able to you, you just can't i don't think you can yeah at all. The, the haka manuscript has i mean the scribe of that was the the letters are very square they have you know mm -hmm. the little club feet at the at the bottom of the minims they don't have much in the way of ascenders there's a lot of biting uh there's a fair bit of abbreviation he kept the thorn uh, he kept the yog. He dots his Y's. Bless him. Yeah. I mean, there are so few people who do that. <laughs> you yeah. know? Uh, and and these are all sort of indications of English. These is Middle English. Middle English um, scribal practices. And, scribal and this is, again, yeah. why I say, you know, when, we, when you're trying to date the hand, I mean, it could be anywhere from, I'd say, 1375 to 1450. But the, these, are, these are a little bit more old-fashioned-y, you know. And I think right. this is why Malcolm Parks told me he thought it was 1405 or so. Just conveniently is the beginning of Henry V's reign. And, you know, and um, Ian Doyle said it was the end of Henry V. So somewhere in there is a, probably a good guess for when this was copied, which means it was written before it was copied. So mm -hmm. uh, things like that. But one of the other things that I've been doing is, is, is trying to figure out, you know, just the transmission of it. We, I know it was in uh, Hockham Hall in 1616 because it's in the catalog. Right. All right. All uh, right. Then Derici, God bless him, has published that catalog, so you can look at it, and it's number 675. It says, The Passion of Christ with Prayers, etc. in English, on vellum, 15th century, illuminated initials. Yeah. Right? And it references Horwood. So, okay, we know it was there. But how did it get there from wherever it came from? Mm -hmm. Well, I started thinking about, this is a text that was written for a community of religious women, and it has a prayer in it for anchresses. And it talks about the author as being a woman who is sinful and needs God's grace and things like that, which is often how anchresses term themselves. I said, can I find a community of women who had an anchress? And there is some documentation. It's been growing on these people. And as I start plowing through the Hawkham Library, I find out that the Holcomb Library was loaning books to an anchorist at Polesworth, which is about 60 miles away. It's in Warwickshire. And that there are, in fact, a couple of manuscripts in that same 1616 catalog, one of which is a Psalter and another which is a Latin manual for teaching young children that have references to they were loaned to Benedicta Burton, or Bennett Burton, the anchoress of Polesworth. She was the last anchoress there. She was there at the dissolution in 1538, according to Dugdale, where she was, he said, extremely old. And so I'm going like, okay, so books were going back and forth. They ended up coming back from Polesworth to Hockham Hall. I wonder if my prayer book came with them. And then I go into the Psalter, and I have I have a picture for you in the in the slideshow here. The Psalter, when you look at the Psalter, which is manuscript 24 at Holcomb, there is a 15th, 
probably early 16th, late 15th century inscription. And it says this book was loaned to Dame uh, Bennett Burton, the anchoress of Polesworth. And it was done at the request of J- Dame Jane Knightley. Mm-hmm. Well, oh. okay. So who's Dame Jane Knightley? Well, it turns out when you dig around a little more, uh, that one of the Knightleys left a bunch of stuff to Coke, the owner of the Hawkham Hall, uh, in his will. And digging around, I, I found out that the Knightleys are from Fosley in Northamptonshire, which is a little closer to Polesworth. Now, I haven't established a connection of the Knightleys or any of those families back to Polesworth. Mm-hmm. We have the names of all the abbesses of Polesworth in the 14th and 15th centuries. We don't have the names of the anchoresses, but we know that they, they constantly had one. Right. Uh, and if you go visit the church, you can still kind of see the outline of the anchor hold on the exterior wall. And so it's just like, you know, I don't know that this is the right place, but I do know that books from an anchoress came back to Hockham Hall. Mm-hmm. Possibly this manuscript at some point was at Polesworth. And the nuns at Polesworth, it was a fairly thriving community, but they had a school. And they taught boys and girls. Oh, from all over. Right. And so they, and they were borrowing Latin theory, you know, Latin education theory manuscripts. So, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned that the second text in the book mentions men and women. Right. Right. Not just women, but men and women. Right. So that yes. sort of makes sense. The text in originally aimed context. William Fleet was an, uh, uh, was an Augustinian uh, friar. And th- this was probably written for his fellow friars before he up and left for Italy because he decided he couldn't be as much of a recluse in England as he wanted to be. So he moved <laughs> to Italy and ended up in Catherine of Siena's circle um, mm. and may or may not have been a little bit eccentric, depending on whose version you read. You know, you went off and you were a hermit in the woods all day. And then apparently you came back and had dinner with the rest of everybody else. That seems like cheating <laughs> to me. I mean, that's like Thoreau at Walden where every Sunday he went in to have dinner with his mother and get his laundry with his, done. She could do his laundry. <laughs> yeah. And, he's been, and, 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 and remember, he's three miles away from mommy at any given point. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I that's the so woods great. so I could live deliberately and my mother could do my laundry. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. So. You know, that's the, so like that. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you love it? But. I love that. I bet the food was better in Italy, though. So if you've got to go be by yourself and then have dinner every night, maybe Italy is better than England. I, w- I would think so. I mean, I would imagine monastic refectory fare was not probably the highest gourmet standard, but yeah, you know, maybe maybe the lentils were done with a little oregano. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but. Oh, that's great. You know, and, and, and this is the kind of fun thing because, I mean, you know, this is a mystery I'll never be able to solve. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll never know who it was or, you know, what how it got where it is. But for me, it's it's such a... When I was in grad school, uh, I went to a talk by John Hurt Fisher, the great scholar of Chaucer from the University of Tennessee, and he said, we'll never know who the first woman who wrote English was. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, we don't know who the first man who wrote English was, but why don't mm-hmm. we know who the woman who wrote English was? And that's really what kind of set me, if you will, on my on my scholarly career. I did a, a dissertation on the rhetoric of prayer, and I've only come back to that now, forty years later, the prayer part of it. But mm-hmm. the 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 owners and the writers is what I have been working on my entire career. How you know what we know about literacy? How women played the Oh, uh, shucky darns, I am just a, a poor, you know, feeble woman. Don't take me seriously because I'm not trying to preach. I know St. Paul said I couldn't do that. Right, you know? right. Um, and they say it so often that that you just know that it's a trope. Yeah. <laughs> you know, 
It's like it's like sumptuary laws. I mean, they wouldn't pass the laws in university towns every every ten years. It says you have to wear jackets to cover your butts if people didn't keep wearing jackets that didn't cover their that butts. didn't cover their butts exactly. It's like, it's like parking regulations. You yeah, know? It's like you know, what law do we pass, pass the most often and charge the most fines for? That's what people are doing. Yeah. Yeah. So when you have, you know, when he keeps saying, women keep saying like, oh, I'm not possibly offering my own opinion on any, a, matter, a religious matter, <laughs> you know, shocks. Yeah. Know, you know what it is. So. Yeah. I hear, I hear birds in your background. Yes. Oh. Yeah. There are, I, I've been trying to mute my, mute my microphone, but I am, I am in fact sitting outside uh, on Chincoteague. <laughs> it's lovely. <laughs> it's just cool. It is a little chilly, but um I thought since I'm here, I'd use it as an excuse to sit outside a little bit. Sitting outside on a lovely morning talking about manuscripts, what could be better? Oh my gosh, nothing could be better. No, this is this is great. So let's see. There was a question that I wanted to ask at the very sort of at the very beginning when you getting back to these metaphors that mm-hmm. that the writer is using and how they sort of draw on on house housewifery like house stuff and i was wondering if that in any way could could imply that this was an maybe an older woman who had had a married life and was coming to a religious house later in life or if it's just tropes that even a younger woman would know who didn't who didn't get married or if there's really any way to know at all and we, all we can do is sort of say well could be one or the other what do you think about that that's a great question i think that any woman who was not raised in a strictly aristocratic household when she was young was raised on some basic huswifery if you read the conduct books that exist from this period for how women are supposed to raise their children and knowing about you know, filling an oil lamp and sweeping the floor and things like that are things that they would have needed to know either to do themselves or to supervise servants if they're from that that class where they would have had servants. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think that it necessarily assumes that she herself was a married woman and housewife. Right. Um, I do think, however, that she is considered, from the way she talks about uh, her religious sisters at the beginning, and also towards the end of the text, when she says to them, you know, I've, I've written these for you the way you've asked, but I really wish you knew them off by heart uh, rather than by book so that, mm-hmm. you, uh, you know, so that you would live these prayers every day. I get a sense of somebody who has at least been in her religious identity and mm-hmm. thought through these kinds of questions for a while. So I would say she probably is a, uh, a mature woman. She's not a very young, inexperienced woman. Right. And it may well be that the sisters she is writing for are younger nuns um, or people early in their profession of their vocation. Mm-hmm. And um, and so she's giving them something that connects to the life they've turned away from to enter the convent as a means of entering into this meditation on the life of Christ and why they've chosen Christ over a worldly relationship. Mm-hmm. So I, I I get a sense of her being a little bit more experienced and knowledgeable about the world, but I don't know that there's nothing that says she was married. Um, I know that Benedict Ward has argued that Julian of Norwich may have been not only married, but a mother. She's that wonderful mm-hmm. essay, Julian the mother. And that's possible, but I don't think it has to be. 
And mm-hmm. some of the tropes in these things are used by men and women. Um, in the fleet text, that's, a, that's the second text in this manuscript, uh, he uses the god, the mother image, for example, that everybody gets so excited about in Julian of Norwich. And here it is in something in 1358. So, you know, mm-hmm. it's not like, you know, she uses it very well and she uses it to great effect, but it's not, she's not, she didn't come up with it. Right. It was a trope um, that she was using. Yeah. And, and again, yeah. when, I, when I go back to this question of common language, I think there seems to have been a vernacular preaching language, mm-hmm. uh, a vernacular theological language that developed in England in this. I mean, the mystics are only hot, face it, from Richard Roll to Marjorie Kemp. All mm-hmm. right? It's about 100 years that the mystics are, if you will, active in England, although their texts hang around a lot longer. But there seems to have been a language that kind of is connected with this that must have appealed to a broader section of people than could become anchoresses and could become recluses. But we also know all those preachers. I mean, think in the book of Marjorie Kemp, how many different preachers come through town. She talks about going to here. Norwich isn't the only place where people would have, or King's Lynn is the only place where those people would have been coming through. They'd be coming to any decent sized town in England. Mm-hmm. And that meant that that language was being spread to lots and lots of people. It means that literacy and the ability to, I mean, you know, we always think about the Reformation as, you know, Martin Luther and, you know, you know, uh, Wycliffe, people owning Wycliffeite texts were being burned at the stake. Yeah. And, and by Arundel and people like that, 1407 and things like that. But it also means that there certainly was a lot of vernacular preaching and a lot of vernacular mm-hmm. discussion of spirituality that was going on in an authorized circumstance. Right. And so it's not just like, you know, all these people were ignorant and they went to church and they stared at the stained glass because they couldn't understand the words, you know, and things like that. Yes. I mean, you look in medieval churches, this was the period of stained glass, this is the period of those great wall paintings that tell all kinds of stories, not just, you know, biblical stories, but St. George and the Dragon and all these good things, you know, they gave you something to look at and think about, but you also got to hear about it Mm -hmm. and people could understand it and, and discuss it. I mean, and if, if you look at somebody like Julian Norwich, um, or look at somebody like Walter Hilton, they're doing theology at a pretty high level in the vernacular, probably for an audience that never would have gotten any kind of Latin education. So it means that, you know, literacy, the narrative of literacy that came out of the late 19th century about it only belonged to the church and a few aristocrats and, you know, the rest of the people were reading French romances and things like that. Um, is, is a very skewed version of literacy. Look for just an example, how many merchant shops are inherited by widows mm-hmm. who then take right. over all the, the contracts. And the, and the women did a lot of the accounting mm-hmm. and things like that. So they, they would have had to be numerate. They had to keep household records. They had to be able to keep their books. They had to have at least some functional level of literacy for that. Yeah. You know, but, but that, that doesn't count because it's not Chaucer. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So. Yeah. I'm thinking also about books of hours mm. and the literature around books of hours as if not a feminine, which I don't, I don't really like that whole, like, it's like the feminine thing. Cause of course men, men had books of hours and men owned them and, mm-hmm. and used them. But there, you know, there is, there is a lot of, uh, or a lot of examples of, of books of hours written for women um, and owned by women, and also as sort of a family uh, text, and that the woman's place in the family, along with books of hours, which are prayer, they're like prayer books that um, that you would have in your home versus, uh, although they did have them in, I think, monastic 
in people in monastic communities also had books of hours, but they were usually um, lay people. And, well, and they were and they were a status symbol um, right. too. Yes. So when you start when 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 you start getting a a, a growing merchant class and I don't want to mm -hmm. say bourgeois or middle class, but right. that class that has a little bit of leisure time and has a little bit of leisure income money. That's mm -hmm. one of the first things that people seem to have acquired. And we see how many of them were made. Thousands and thousands of these were made. Thousands, so many. Yeah. Um, and many of them were made to be customized. Um, mm -hmm. And you can see. And the very first one that survives in England, the Debrez Hours um, in in the British Library, uh, which was made for a woman. And mm -hmm. uh, apparently her Dominican confessors took a look at it before it got bound and said, no, this prayer has to be edited. And there's actually one little choir that's cut out and replaced. Oh, and, gosh, I didn't know that. And it's got and there's one choir that the lines, there's a different number of lines per, per, per page. Mm -hmm. um, and it's got two two miniatures in there that appear to show the woman for whom it was made. And she's wearing mm -hmm. sort of a tawny pink dress. And the book is bound in that same tawny pink. It literally was accessorized. Oh my gosh! Yeah, so she could like carry it, and it would match her or match her dress. best gown to go to, to yeah go to church, right? Um, yeah. So you know, Susanna. That we think her name may have been Susanna. She may have lived just mm -hmm. outside of Oxford. And so you know, the, this the, they're they're a status thing. You know, it's, it's right. they were the Michael Kors purse of the uh, of the, of the 14th <laughs> and 15th centuries. You know, and um, and you know, Marjorie Kim talks about taking her book to church. And mm -hmm. that would have had, you know, with the with the hours of the Virgin in it and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, I mean, the, the, and say they're feminized is it, 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 when when people use that term feminist, I think they're trying to reduce the kind mm -hmm. of the 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 complexity of, of what they are. Um, that's what I've. That's whenever I read that, I, that's how I feel about it. So I'm glad to hear you. Yeah. Say that you think that too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and instead it just says that no women, there was a market for women. These things were customized. I mean, and mm -hmm. we know by like the 1430s, Osborne Bokenham is writing lives of saints at women's request. I mean, he's been doing a collection mm -hmm. and basically it's custom, you know, fanfic. Oh, you want yeah. the life of St. Agatha? I'll give you the life of St. Agatha. We will not have the life of St. Agatha, but I'll make one for you. We'll make one up. <laughs> yeah. uh, Invenzione. <laughs> right? mm -hmm. Um, you know, because as I always say to my students, you know, you can't do fiction in the Middle Ages because to tell something untrue is a lie and a lie is a sin and a sin is a bad thing. Yeah. But if you are filling in the holes of a narrative so that people understand their, the, the moral and religious message better, that's a right. good thing. So it's not fiction, right? You know? Right, right. Uh, you know, they, the way that the authors had to get around that uh, is a, uh, you know, and you can, again, it's a trope. You know that people get around it and everything else like that. That's that's fun. I it is that. fun. It is fun. And you know, and and then of course you look at those books, and I mean, and again, the Hawkham Prayer Book is no different in this. You know, they got politicized. I mean, the Hawkham Prayer Book has the place where there was the prayer for all the shepherds of the church, and the Pope part has really been scraped out, and then the one that says archbishops and bishops and prelates and curates has been blotted out with ink. Um, mm -hmm. which you can see, I, I, actually, I put photographs of that for you in there too. Mm -hmm. You can see if you have a, a really good digital scanner, you can kind of see underneath the blobs. Uh, yeah. Uh, but you can also see where it was scraped so hard that literally they, 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 they tried to scrape the Pope out of existence. Yeah. Um, after, and that, so that, that happened after Henry the, uh, Henry the 
ace nationalized the church. So that, you know, that happened at some point when the book was probably in the Knightley family's hands before it got to the Cokes, where they, they cleaned it up so that, you know, it didn't violate anybody's, just like they're doing to Roald Dahl now, you know, yeah, they adjust yeah. them for their sensitivities. But, you know, these, these things are politicized. Um, these manuscripts went in and out of the hands of people who mm-hmm. used them for other purposes. Yeah. You know, but it also shows a long history of use, yeah. you know, that they were, they were actively in order, you know, in order for them to care enough to scrape out the Pope, they were still using it, you know, after Henry VIII. Yeah. Somebody said was, no more Pope. <laughs> somebody, somebody, whether it was Bennett Burton or somebody who, who knows, uh, somebody was using this for their prayers. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, and the fact that it stayed in a, a state out on the Norfolk, Norfolk coast, you know, far away from where, you know, they might've gotten into trouble probably also saved them until again, like I said, in the beginning of the 20th century, somebody died and they had taxes to pay and they cut a deal mm-hmm. with the British government to give some of their manuscripts to various libraries in order to pay the death duties. And right. probably Falcon or Madden or somebody from Oxford came out to look at things and saw this and went, this looks interesting. We'll take that. We'll take that one. <laughs> yeah, I, and and uh, the thing about the Bodley refs for this manuscript it doesn't say when they were brought in. This was brought in, mm-hmm. and it doesn't say what what it was brought in with. You know, I would really love to know, sort of what the whole the whole chunk that was taken as death. Mm-hmm. Some, some, somewhere there's a I'm sure in the Royal Stationing Office or somewhere there's a there's a or probate there's a statement of what they took because I'd love to know how they assess, assess the value of it. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, because I'm sure that there were thousands of pounds of death duties owed on an estate and that big and everything else like that. Um, I'm hoping this summer to get out to Hawkham and actually see those two manuscripts in situ. Um, I was supposed to do it in 2019 and then, um, you know, the world shut down. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the li- and I don't I don't even know who the librarian is now. That's a position that seems to turn over quite frequently out there. So I'll have mm-hmm. to write again and establish myself again. And yes, I have seen the, 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 yes, you've sent me the, the nightly genealogy. I've seen that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, good luck. I hope they, I hope they, is that, is that a library where you, you need, you need permission to go? And, yeah. It's in a, it's in a stately yeah. home. So, the, and, the, oh. and the house is open. It's national trust. The house mm-hmm. is open. You can go see it, but it's way out in the middle of nowhere. So I'll either have to rent a car or there's a bus, but I think it lets you off like two miles away and, Oh no! Yes, <laughs> and, and given given my 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 track record of driving in England, I think I probably will Uber it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. get someone else to do it for me, or just pay a driver and just say, "Here, you can have the day and have a picnic, and I'll drive me back at night or something like that." Come out from Kings Lynn yeah. or somewhere like that. But I'm looking forward to the chance to do it. Yeah, being able to travel again is is nice. Yes, I After. miss libraries. I miss libraries so much. Mm-hmm. For all that working with digitization gives us so many affordances in terms of visibility and scale and magnification and things like that. There's nothing like having that smell of manuscripts and the feel mm-hmm. of it in your fingers. Feel. Um, I always tell people that when I did my dissertation, I sat in a one of the uh, ranks in Duke Humphrey and I had a uh, you know, section of 16th century manu- of book, you know, records you know, in front of me on this wooden table and I'd have a manuscript open in front of me that was from the 13th century. And behind me, I could hear Tilly Delamere on the phone shouting about microfilms. <laughs> <laughs> and somehow it just seemed, you know, like that's how, how it should be. And then 
and then where I sat actually became the restricted section in Harry Potter. So it's just oh. <laughs> Oh gosh! I always show I show people pictures of the range of Dukumfrey. Said this is where I did my dissertation, and that's the restricted section. <laughs> <laughs> and my students are all like, oh, "You did your dissertation at Hogwarts?" It's like not really, but kind of, kind of. Yeah, Hogwarts should have only been so lucky. But yeah, I mean, my dissertation. My I did my dissertation from Chapel Hill, but I had I mm-hmm. had a fellowship from um, Jermaine Greer. But that point was running the Tulsa Center for Women's Studies, and I got one of her summer fellowships to go look at things that women didn't normally get to go look at. Excellent. It was lovely. It was so lovely. That's really good. Yeah. So if so, if you could go to any library and see any manuscript, either one that you haven't seen yet or one that you have seen but would love to see it again, what would it be? Like, what's your dream your dream manuscript to see in person? Oh man. Um, I have touched the Thornton manuscript uh, at Lincoln Cathedral um, when I was young and they still let people in those libraries. Um, And I've had the Vernon manuscript out at Bodley when I was doing my graduate work. I think I might want to go to... um, Lambeth Palace Library and mm-hmm. and look at the Julian of Norwich manuscript there. Oh yes, because mm-hmm. I've only ever seen that in photographs. I haven't mm-hmm. even seen it in a display case. Right. Uh, I think I'd like to see that one. I'd like to touch that one. Um. I uh, and I've had the Debray's hours out. I I had to fuss and fuss and fuss because <laughs> they're going like there's a microfilm. Yes, but the fly leaves are not photographed. The microfilm. We have photographs. You don't have photographs. Then. There's prayers added uh, in uh, Anglo-Norman in the fly leaves of the Debray's Hours, which is the first surviving book of hours. Um, mm-hmm. And I wanted to look at them because I wanted to see if the pronouns were male or masculine or feminine. Right. And they're mixed. Some are masculine. Oh. Some are feminine. But I had to have the manuscript out right. to see that because there's no record of it anywhere else. And they wouldn't let me turn the pages. They turned the page every time. They I'm trying the to take notes and I'm going to kind of turn it back. And you saw that one. I, yeah, I need to compare. <laughs> <laughs> They're so precious. They're so precious about their, their manuscripts. They well, and, you know, I'm not a known character. I mean, I, I go over yeah. about every three years. And so I'm not somebody who's in there all the time. I mean, if it had been That's Pamela true. Robinson... They were going, oh, yes, of course, Miss Robinson, you know. And, <laughs> and that's, that's also a trick. If you need to see a t- uh, an iffy manuscript, take Pam with you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Everybody remember that. <laughs> I'm, sure, I, I'm sure Pam will be writing me going, Joe, what did you say? <laughs> what did you say on this on this podcast? <laughs> well, oh. I'm just assuming that everybody listens to it, too, because it's it's a great podcast. I've really enjoyed listening to it. Oh, the thank you. Yeah, I don't, I, I, I mean, I think people are listening to it. I don't pay too much attention to stats and stuff i'm just i'm just having a fun actually it's like it's like a great excuse for me to talk to people i want to talk to about fun things so you know i think i I think (laughs) i think it's a wonderful excuse and i'm I'm delighted that you thought i was fun enough to talk to oh yeah for sure for sure it's been really it's been really great everybody hearing everybody's experiences and you know it's I, i don't know it's great it's fun i love manuscripts and i love hearing people talk about them so they're so wonderful, yeah. and it's we've been able to uh, co- uh, create at my institution a small collection of fragments, mm-hmm. um, uh, so that students can at least begin to get some familiarity yeah. with them. Um, 
and we have, you know, a piece of 12th century Franciscan breviary, and we have a leaf from Bartholomeus Anglicus that was a paste down, um, and, you know, lots of school stuff. We focused largely on things that were school type books because we have a very strong College of Ed. And just bringing students in and seeing their faces when they're touching a manuscript. And I give them a page of music manuscripts, say, how many faces can you find in here? It's got all little faces in the the nooms and things like that. Uh, And just to see how they light up and they're interested in, can we work with all this stuff? You know, I bring some of my pieces in um, and most of my fragments collection will go to Winthrop when I retire so that they can continue it, you know, and then they can see a little illuminated piece or things that were printed on vellum and then painted in to make them look like manuscripts. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And s- students just have such fun with that. Yeah. And, um, and so I just, I just, I want everybody to have this joy. Hi. Lindsay's here. <laughs> Do you want to say hi? No, she's being very shy. Hi, Lindsay. <laughs> Joe says hi. Sorry, I didn't wake you up because I for- I forgot, and then and then it was ten o'clock and I didn't want to wake you up. <laughs> We're having a nice time. Are you okay? How's your How's your How's your biscuit? It's delicious. Okay. I'm so sorry. No, you're fine. Oh my god! No, I I should have wo- I should have woken you up, but then it was like it was the kind of thing where like do I. Do I do I wake her up because she's asleep? And then it's like I struggled, and then it was ten o'clock, and I was like, I guess it's too late to wake you up. <laughs> so I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. Hi, no, you're fine. Lindsay says hi. hi. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be in in a bit. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. That was totally that was totally me. I was just yeah, but it really was that sort of struggle where I was like, oh no, do I wake her up? She's asleep. I don't want to wake her up. Who is I can't remember the name of the woman. The woman I think she wrote "Please Don't Eat the Daisies," um, but she had that poem, "Dearer to Me Than a, a Brand New Car, a Shining Star, a Superstar." Dearer to me than these by far is to lie in bed in the morning. Yes, yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly that. Like I don't want to pull you out of bed to record it. I, mean, I think if you get a getaway to a lovely uh, coastal island, I think you should be allowed to lie in bed and not have to feel guilty about not getting up. That's right. That's right. I was up earlier. I was, I just wake up earlier. So I made biscuits and stuff. So wait a minute. I didn't get a biscuit. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Next time I'll, I'll I'll get you a biscuit. Um, And I feel like I was in the middle of saying something and now I can't remember what we were, what, what we were talking about the love for manuscripts and the, Oh yes. Yeah. Yeah. Just how great they are. They are. And it's nice to talk to other manuscript nerds, Mm -hmm. you know, no, there's a lot of people when we start talking about manuscripts kind of look at us like, you know, you could be medicated for that. <laughs> it's like, no, it's no. fine. I want to talk about duckness. I want to do it. <laughs> no, I feel I, 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 I consider myself to be very lucky because my family, my husband and I have a, a child who is 13 and they are very patient with with me talking about my but they are also kind of weird about stuff so i let them talk to me about the stuff that they're weird about and then they let me talk to them about manuscripts and everybody that seems ultimately fair absolutely fair yes yeah for sure was there anything else that you wanted to talk about or i uh, i think we kind of went over everything i pulled slides for you for um do you want to look at any of those slides and just ask me about any of these people or Let's 
Let's see. So we've got, and these are all going to be in the show notes. So we've got the one page that with the reverse. So you can, and it, it is amazing how you can see the text a lot better when it's white on a black yeah. background. And then those beautiful initials, even in the black and white, I can see how gorgeous they are. And I'm annoyed that they were trimmed so close. Yeah, there's a lot of green and a lot of blue. They're very pretty. Oh, I bet. Yeah, no, they look they look really nice. And then the next couple ones are just like sort of pages so you can see the kind of the condition and mm -hmm. the blobs. Yeah, I can see. Oh, yeah. Is that the, I'm looking at slide five. Is that the one with the mildew you were talking about? That's 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 one of the ones with the mildew. That's toward yeah. the end. That's at the end of the fleet text. Yeah. And then the next one is the obliterated text. Yeah. Yes. That's been uh, yeah. stricken out. And then the flyleaf? That's the flyleaf. That has the catalog number of the of the Coke Library, the 675. Got and it. it's yep. got something in pencil on there that I can't bring up. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to have to do some some more photo manipulation. We got a new uh, microfilm scanner that is fancy, and I haven't played with it yet. Mm -hmm. um, and our digital librarians are just so happy to have somebody who's not looking at government documents with it that they let me play with it whenever I want. Right. Uh, and you can see the next one is the Coke of book plate and yeah, the signature of that is. So you can see it says Thomas mm -hmm. William Coke. Uh, and yeah. then where uh, Falconer Madden has written in Hockham Nisk 4041. Yeah. Uh, that's nice. The next one is the little lyric that's in the Hockham one that's in also in that other manuscript I talked about. Yes. Um, it's in six or seven manuscripts and it's, it's mm -hmm. not, it's never identical anywhere. Um, but it's in the manuscripts that it's in often have connections to the mystics. Yes. Um, yeah. And I'm seeing you were mentioning the Y with the, the dotted Y as one yeah. of the examples of sort of an older one. And I see several Y's yeah. here with, with dots. Yeah. I mean, and, 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 and he's very consistent about that. Yeah. Oh, and there's a thorn. Yeah. There are thorns. The, there are some yolks. Yeah. I don't think there's any in this page, but there are some yolks. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, but you notice instead of a capital thorn, he's going to the capital T H. Mm -hmm. um, yep. But uh, but we see all the biting too, and the the, the real clubby foot minims and everything mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is why. I mean, it looks like a slightly earlier hand. Yeah. You know, it's got it's got a lot of those kinds of flavors to it. Yeah. Um, the next one is the um, the one with the inscription about Benedict Benedict Burton that Dame, and Dame right. Jane Knightley. And right. um, that's how I managed to track the the Knightleys, and the other one is the Derici, uh, the Derici catalog that you mentioned. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then the Knightley tomb. Yeah, the, this is this is where the Knightleys are buried. This may be Dame Jane, or it may mm -hmm. be her mother, uh, her mother-in-law rather, because there's right. two of them, of course, one generation apart. This makes it so much of more course. fun. <laughs> they have to make it complicated. Well, I mean, the the manuscript that I did my master's thesis on, the, the Wycliffeite Bible at Penn, has an inscription on the front, Gilbert Bishop of Bath and Wells. Oh, um, right. And it could be either of two. Either two. It could be Bloody Mary's yeah. or Elizabeth's because they were back to back. Mm -hmm. And right. you know, I sent a picture of it at that point to the uh, to the canon of, of, of Bath and Wells. And they went like, we can't tell. Yeah. <laughs> That's just the library end. So <laughs> I was like, darn it. I wish I knew it. You know, I, I suspect it was Elizabeth's, but I can't tell you. Yeah. Um, and then this is the kind of stuff this next one is how, how this is the fun stuff about tracking these people is trying to figure out from 
summaries of wills and things like that. You know, this is the kind of detective work I've been doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I have an interest in detective fiction, but this is detective fact, actually. Yes. And then the last couple of ones are pictures from that manuscript um, right. that uh, Robert Benig thought was similar. And you can see that this that these initials are not at all the same. The the, mm-hmm. the foliage is not at all the same. I mean, the smaller yeah, one. No, it's it's really different. Yeah. Yeah. And then this is the inset handwriting that would be contemporary. Right. And this is a prayer for women. And then mm-hmm. this is the uh, the next the one on the other side of that is the Iste Mihi Johanna. Right. And then there's the bodily refs on that one that says, you know, some of the additional prayers were written by a lady. Yeah. Or for a lady, you know, for a lady, uh, things like that, and and the, the bodily refs actually say that that's a nor- that that manuscript is a northern manuscript. I'm not entirely sure what in the manuscript makes them think that it wasn't made in London. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got beautiful illuminations, and it's got lots of places where the illuminations were never paid for and inserted, but you can still see the instructions to the illuminator uh, in a in a very light hand. So, um, but I don't know what they think makes it northern. Um, it could as easily be London. Well, thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. This has been a lovely way to spend my morning. It's been great for me, too. I feel like I've learned a lot, which is always great. I love learning about things that I didn't know about. Well, you know so much about manuscripts. I learn from you every time I listen to oh, you or I come to one of the, you know, Coffee with a Codex. Coffee with a Codex. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. I love I love doing those. It's really a bright a bright part of my week. So I'm glad you come and you enjoy them Come as often as I can when there's not a stupid committee meeting. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I know. Not everybody can make it all the time, but yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. Yes. All right. Now that, now that we're back together, there seems to be an impulse that we must have more meetings. And we're, uh, yeah, my, 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 sure. my goal in life is to break people of that habit. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> Chaotic quest, but <laughs> yeah. Thank you for listening to Inside My Favorite Manuscript. Please, if you enjoy the podcast, leave a rating or a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Our website is insidemyfavoritemanuscript.tumblr.com, and there you'll find posts for all our episodes and a link where you can contact us directly. We'll be back again soon with another conversation about manuscripts and why we love them.